Good morning, Hope Reform Baptist Church. I can't promise that our study this morning is going to be as riveting as the Athanasian Creed, but I do love it. I love that that guy punched a heretic in the face in one of the church councils. I think we should bring that back in some church members meetings and things like that. That'd be good fun, but it's very nice to meet you if I haven't yet. Last week, I was crook and had to rush out after both services, so I'd love to get to know you and say day if I haven't yet afterwards. And uh, Hopers, we, we are a welcoming bunch, so you see a new person that you haven't said day to yet or looks like they're dwindling on their own, make sure you get around them and say day. And remember, if you've been here any longer than about a month, you're no longer new. There's probably about 10 or uh, 10 people or five families or so that have come in since you started coming, so you need to turn around and start serving by welcoming people. So that's just all a part of being under God's blessing as a growing church that loves the Word of God. Amen? Amen. And I'm testing that this morning. I counted all of you that said amen, because we're in one of those portions of Scripture we say we love, we're reformed, sola scriptura, all of the Word of God is profitable and beneficial, and we love it. Amen? Amen? All right, go to Exodus chapter 21. Let's see how we go, because this is an exhilarating, exciting colourful, narrative, lots of characters doing exciting things portion of scripture. I've broken one of the commandments and lied to you. This, this is when God speaks to Moses. Moses is apart from the rest of the people. The Israelites are at the bottom of Mount Sinai camping in their multi-million person camp out. And Moses has gone up before God as the people's mediator to receive the word from God that he will then go down. And and we're going to see this in chapter 24 in two sermons time. He reads to the Israelites these laws and then makes a sacrifice where he sprinkles blood on them and sprinkles blood on the book. And what he's doing when he does that is, is binding the book and the people together. What Moses is hearing from God is what, what, what the book itself calls the book of the covenant. These are the, the laws which are all applications of the Ten Commandments, and they're going to define and constrain what life in the promised land is going to look like for God's chosen people, the Israelites, until what the New Testament calls the time of reformation or renewal the time when the Messiah comes and establishes in in portions and parts the great eternal kingdom. So so this is defining, this is so important for them. And if you're going to be a Christian who reads the Old Testament and and tries to understand the the judgments of God against his people or, or the blessings of God and the history of the Israelite nation as it comes to us in the Old Testament, you need to have some working understanding of the laws that they were to behave under in order to receive the covenant blessings. And and these are those. Today, we see the sections about, uh, well, we see a bunch of uh, 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 laws regarding the death penalty and uh, capital crimes. And then we uh, surrounding things like intentional and unintentional deaths. And then a second portion about restitutions, fines, and payments. I would remind you that as we come to these, you're told to think that the Old Testament is, is barbaric and, and old and irrelevant and just written by rock apes and cavemen and, and nomadic sh- uh, sheep herders that really knew nothing of what they were doing and, and really did nothing other than just copy the nations around them. For example, maybe you're familiar with the, uh, 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 the Hummurabi Code 
which is just some kind of ancient uh, law code that we found uh, dating from about the same time. And there's a lot of similarity. Like, don't think that when you come to the Bible in the Old Testament, you're going to find anything other than just a bunch of ancient shepherds just writing down whatever they thought of the day. Now, that, we're going to prove how false that is. But, but Western man coming to the Old Testament law is kind of like this, this account that I read in the, in the biography of Jonathan Goforth just this last week. He was a, a missionary in the 1800s, uh, end of the 1800s, uh, to China. And he was in this unreached portion of China in the Changte province. And, and in, in, in his chapel, he would, he would bring in people and preach the gospel to them, of course. But there was this one arrogant class of people who came by in swaths every year and they were the college students. Just hands up if you've ever met a college student. You know what I'm talking about. Just They know everything now because they did six months of study and, and they got a distinction and now you need to bow down to them. And so this is what he's experienced. Once a year, the university students would come from all around, thousands upon thousands into the province to do their assessments. And they would come into the chapel day after day. And when he would try and preach the gospel to them, they would mock and laugh and just stand up the back and then run out laughing in the middle of his, of his presentation. And he was so annoyed after the first year that he decided by the next time they come back, I'll have them. And he sent back to uh, uh, England, and he had sent over this, uh, this globe, this globe of Earth with the map on it as they understood it, and, and also an astronomical diagram and, that, that sort of spun around and showed the orbit of the planets in our solar system. And then the next time that all of these learned, young Chinese students came in, top of the education uh, 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 types, they came in and, and they were wondering, what is this ball? And he said, this is the Earth. This is what you live on. This is the earth. And they said, that's ridiculous. We've all learned and know very well that the earth is a square and is flat. All right. Tinfoil hatters, these, these Chinese students. And he goes, no, in fact. And, and he starts explaining to them the rotation of the earth. And they say, are you to say that every night the earth flips upside down? Why don't we fall off? And he, well, he, he started to explain gravity. And the pull of, 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 of central uh, gravitational pull and movement and motion and all of these wonderful ideas explored and expounded by Western scientists and philosophers. And, and these Chinese students professed that they realize they're like a man at the bottom of a deep well looking up at only one section of sky and thinking they know what the whole heavens look like. And they said, maybe after all, this foreigner does have something to teach us about the world and the God who made it. And, and many of them, after that, by the hundreds, became Christian. This is the, the, the dilemma of Western man. He stands judging God's law of the Old Testament, written by nomadic, sheep-herding idiots, and then struggles with all of his might to be able to come up with a law code that even scratches at its equity, fairness, and justice. That's where we live today. Like, we think we're so evolved and, and, and we've developed and we're beyond all of this and, and the lex talionis that we're going to look at today, this eye for eye to, oh, it's so barbaric and it leaves people with so much inequity, iniquity, I mean, and, and inequity in society and people are unequal and the classes are against each other and there's division and the families break up. Oh, but we've nailed it, haven't we? Like the Western class right now, we can look back on ancient societies and say, they stuffed up their society, right? we're doing just fine. Absolutely not. The proof is in the pudding. We are like men sitting in the bottom of a well, looking at one portion of sky and judging others because they understand the concepts of gravity. 
Well, we come to our scripture this morning, you'll, you'll see what we mean. We're going to go from chapter 21, verse 15, uh, sorry, verse 12, 21, verse 12, and we will be talking about the verses all the way up to verse 14 of chapter 22. But we're only going to read at the outset of our service this morning, we're going to read chapter 21, verse 12, until, where shall we read? Until verse 27. That will give us the spirit and the idea of the passage. Hear now the word of God to his chosen servant Moses, giving the laws, applying the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he do not lie in wait for him, but God just let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a, a stone or his fist or, or the chair, right, WWE themes, and the man did not, uh, d- does not die but he takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outside with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, then he's not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and as he shall pay as the judges determine. There's an old thing we're not very used to as 21st century people. A woman's pregnant and you assume there's a husband. Huh. I think they had something, right? Verse 23, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. May God bless this, his own inspired, timeless, timely law to us this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, what we start out with here is the capital crimes that God gave to Israel, the sorts of things that if you do them, you shall be put to death. And, and he starts with just straight up cold-blooded murder. When somebody lies in wait for somebody and strikes him to kill him, he's put to death. This is, this is a, a capital punishment. We, we might get squeamish at this and say, ah, that's very, that's very old-fashioned. Uh, you know, the, 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 we're done with killing people in public these days. And, and while that may be true, one of the, the things we think is that's unjust. It's actually kind of contradictory that you say human life is precious, sixth commandment. And then you kill murderers. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, well, what we see is that it is in fact an enforcing of the sixth commandment. That because God has said as early as Genesis 1 and 2, and then reiterates to Noah in Genesis 9, that, that mankind, man's life, whether he's a thief or, or, or a real uh, 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 troublemaker, or whether he's an upstanding citizen, whether he's a, a master or a servant, a, a man or a female, a, 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 a king or a shepherd, regardless... 
mankind has in his own being, in his essential being and makeup, the image of the God that made him. That's why human life is so infinitely precious, and when it's taken or destroyed or sold as if it is nothing, then the punishment therein, the only fitting punishment, is your life for your crimes. The only thing you can pay back somebody's life with, the only thing you can pay back the debt of the image of God is your image of God, your blood shed. So it is a very consistent end, good law. This, this applies also, we see in verse 12, murder. Uh, verse 16 tells us kidnapping and slavery, selling people and in, in uh, 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 man-stealing. These get the death penalty. Verse 13 and 14 give us this exception. That in their culture, if there was an accidental death, what we might call manslaughter, right? You're out and you're hunting and your arrow accidentally finds its head lodged in the heart of somebody who, maybe it's their fault. Maybe they're in the camouflage suit right in the shooting range. I don't know. Maybe you overshot your arrow, it ricocheted off a tree and it finds itself lodged in a neighbor's heart. Well, he can't attest that that was an accident because he's now dead their age, what would happen is, it's now the responsibility of the nearest male relative of the dead person that once they hear they died by your hand, they chase you, they kill you, and they bring equality back to the law. Here's what God did. God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In fact, verse 12 and 13 put it in such a way as to say, if he didn't lie in wait and strike this person, if it wasn't an intentional murder, if this was accidental, but the phrasing that the ESV brings out is, if the Lord allows them to fall into their hand. That is that God is sovereign over everything, every life and death, every accidental death. So, so that if somebody dies accidentally, the Israelites were to think that was that man's appointed day and God ordained that he die by accident at this man's hand. But before it could be known that it was accidental, the nearest male relatives still had a right for blood vengeance. So here's what God designed. He put six uh, uh, cities of refuge to be allocated across the map of Israel. Now here's the genius. Your arrow dislodges and strikes Matthew in the chest and he falls down dead. And you know he has a big older brother that can beat you and kill you, silly. You drop what you're doing. You start sprinting along the highways and the byways until you find the nearest city of refuge. And these were to be well advertised and big obvious signs so that the innocent may not be put to death wrongly because that would bring blood guilt upon the nation. And so they were to run and sprint uh, day and night, not stop until they get to the city of refuge. They throw themselves across the line. They hold on to the judges and the elders and the priests in the city of refuge where the Levites lived. And they told them, I'm innocent. There's going to be a guy coming to kill me. And it was the job of the Levites to protect them. Until such a time as an actual uh, judgment could be made and a sentence could be handed down. And if he's innocent, then he lives in the place of the city of refuge for a number of years. And there's all sorts of laws about that in other parts of the Old Testament. This is what God says. Look at verse uh, 14, I believe it's in. But if a man willfully attacked another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Here's one of the other Canaanite Egyptian understandings. If you go into the holy place and you hold on to the altar and God doesn't kill you, you're innocent. They were superstitious. Then they were gambling with blood guilt or blood innocence on, well, I'm holding on to the brick thing and it's not killing me, I'm fine. Here's what God says. 
the evidence proves, if there are witnesses, if it is obvious and known that this man intentionally lay hand against the life of another man, he will be stripped from my altar. There's no protection there. And he will be killed. God was after justice, not superstition. And yet for that justice allowed the freedom of the innocent to the city of refuge. Such was the wisdom of God. And then there's portions in verse 18 and 19 about the close call. If you get in a fight and uh, you injure somebody, and, but they don't die. Now, this is sort of the exception to the death penalty. It's like you almost get the death penalty because you got in a fight, you knocked him out, he was in a coma, okay, he came good. You don't, you don't have to die. Here's the question then. What is fair compensation when a guy is injured, knocked out, hurt, uh, the, uh, another fella in a fight? And God says there's no such thing as pain and suffering compensation. You get in a fight, you're not allowed to sue the other guy who beat you for all of the stress that was caused. This is a part of being a man, being an adult, choosing to get in a fight and try and, try and uh, 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 sort out some kind of disagreement by violence. You're signing up for whatever risks come. Here's the only law. If you hurt them and they're injured, they need medical bills paid for, you pay it. And if they lose out on work days, then you compensate them for the lost work, but nothing above that. You get in a fight, you're absorbing the fact, you're taking on the risk that you might get injured permanently, you might lose work, you might die, you might kill them, you might get arrested, or some combination of all of them. Live by the sword, die by the sword is kind of the idea. So God allows, uh, makes sure that there is fair compensation in these sort of situations, and then gives... Uh, if we took an example from chapter 22, verse 2 and 3, he gives another exception and goes, now, now what if I'm in my bed at night and I hear a glass break? They didn't have glass windows back then, but play with me. And, and you hear a Glock cock and you hear your, your silverware start being gone through. I don't know if people still burglar silverware. And you can hear your safe getting, getting you know, the, the carpets are getting up and somebody's moving your, 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 your panels and you hear they're getting to your safe. And you come upon them with your, with your cricket bat and you smack them across their head and they die. Are you guilty? And the answer in the, 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 the Old Testament was no. No, you could defend. Now, all the Texans said, yeehaw, amen, private property rights, AK, I preached, I preached on this, the only sermon I preached in Texas, I was given a text like this, and I preached on this, and I had a line of guys up later, pack and heat, by the way, telling me I was wrong for what I went and said about this, but, well, God's law says this, if it's nighttime and it's dark, they've got the element of surprise, they're burglaring, there's no way they're there innocently, and there's just been a, a, an honest mix-up, you don't know what weaponry they've got and you don't have time to think in defense of your family. If it comes to blows and they die, their fault. If, however, verse 3 says in chapter 22, if the sun has come up and you kill the person, then there is blood guilt on you. This is what I said in Texas. So this is the equivalent of the assailant taking off his uh, balaclava saying, sorry, you have a bigger gun than me, and running off in Texas, you can still line up and shoot him as long as he's on your property. And I said, that's murder. Maybe legal, it's unrighteous. That's what ticked them off. <laughs> you can understand them and their big trucks. 
they, they, they were ticked off by that. But here's what God's law is saying, is that even a thief bears the image of God. A sinner, yes, a thief, yes, still bears the image of God. Meaning that if the sun is up, you have reason to be able to start um, identifying him, checking what what other weapons he might have, and and then if it does come to blows, it will be adjudicated as a manslaughter case or a, a murder case, and of course there could be exceptions, but that's the principle. Even a thief deserves to be protected from the highest penalty code, the death penalty. God preserved life while also preserving private property in the intricacies of the circumstances we have in life. And then then we we see this application of, you know, we say each of these is sort of uh, uh, amplifying one of the Ten Commandments. Those ones we're sort of talking about, uh, uh, the Sixth Commandment, do not murder. Uh, This next one sort of applies to the Fifth Commandment. Honor your mother and father. Here's what the verse says, verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Verse 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now, this is the value of going through these laws. Is that when we went through the Ten Commandments, we felt, I agree, what a good law. Pastor, you made a good argument. These are great laws. And then you see what God meant by them. And you think, oh, Yeah, I might have some disagreements with the Lord God of hosts at this point. Cursing your parents? Is that? Come on. (laughs) Death? Really? Striking? I mean, who hasn't had a bit of a a, a, a wrestle with their old man? Come on. And and we start getting nervous at the way that God applies his Ten Commandments. These are capital crimes. Not losing the hand, not the pluck out of the eye. You die if you strike or curse your parents. How many of you want to put up their hands and feel like they'd still be alive in the Old Testament era? Well, 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 the real meaning of strike and curse are maybe not what they look like initially on the surface. Strike is, it seems to be the idea of like leaving for dead. There was a real assault upon their person. This isn't a, 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 a bumping into them in the night. This isn't a you and your dad having a bit of a scrap and, and there's an attempted backhand. This, this isn't like that. This isn't intent, sinful as those may be. These are an intentional attempted murder or an assault where you leave them bleeding. And, and the language of cursing is, is, is basically, a, there could be a public or a legal way of doing it. It's not just a swearing at the parents, sinful enough. It's not just a misspeaking towards them, sinful enough. This, the death penalty, was allocated for those who publicly would arise and say, I hereby cut off my parents. They are dead to me, maybe in our language. I have nothing to do with them. They're not my parents. Or legally, they would say, they would go to the bank, write in a little clause, and say, from this point on, my parents are allowed to access none of my finances. Back then, it would have been a family matter. Jesus literally applies this to the neglect of, old, of our elderly parents in their old age as they suffer. And so it's like a, it's an intentional, they're dead to me, may they die, or an intentional cursing or calling God down to kill them, that sort of thing. <laughs> that would leave you killed under the Old Testament law of God that he wrote. Now, what it's not saying is that there's a class of protected citizens out there called parents, Right? You know, all the privileges that come with being a parent and uh, the sympathy from other people, the, the nods you get from other dads with the, the sleep-deprived de- eyes and all that. It's not as if there's a class of, of people called parents and if you harm them, then you're, then you're to be put to death. It's your parents. 
What God is protecting here is not some protected class. It's the familial relationship and covenant bond you're in with your parents. So some of you will need to not fantasize about this. Don't do this. But imagine I got in a fight with your parents and left them for dead. Don't fantasize about it if you're having in-law troubles. Just, just hypothetically. And then I went to my place. Same thing happened. I injured my parents and left them for dead. I could be sued for compensation and losses for harming your parents. I'll be put to death for harming my parents. Why? Because it's not just that there's a protected class. There's a protected relationship. God is saying, if you will harm or curse or seek to destroy those who gave you life, no one in society is safe from you. You deserve to be snuffed out and taken away from God's people on the face of the earth. You are the leaven that will make this people filthy. In, in the Roman law, if you were found to attempt, to attempt to kill someone in your close family, you were thrown into a leather sack with a rooster and a snake and a monkey and a dog, and you were cast into the ocean or the nearest river. That's pretty harsh, but they get the idea. Family is a protected institution by God, and your relationship to your parents is one that deserves and requires respect and honor that other people do not get to demand of you. Moving on, we see this law is about slaves then. Uh, chapter 21, verse 20 and following, we see this idea of, of, like we read it and we say, ah, the slave word bad, barbaric. We, we see that he beats his slave and that's okay. It's his money. He doesn't have to pay anybody. You're reading it wrong. You're reading it with critical theory, 21st century lenses on. Here's, here's the principle. First of all, as opposed to other contemporary similar times in history law codes like the Hummurabi Code and others, if you harm your slave or kill your slave, buy another one. They were your possession. You owned them down to their life value. It doesn't matter. Here's what we have unbeknownst in any other law code of the similar time, anywhere in all historical studies, is that if a master harms or kills his slave, he is to be charged as having killed an equal human. Unheard of. God is saying, like we remembered two weeks ago in Exodus 21, your your ownership, bringing a slave into the household for financial uh, 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 reasons that are good for both of you is a matter of responsibility, not of absolute possession and ownership. Responsibility back and forth for a seven-year period tops, not absolute ownership. So that if you harm them, we actually see coming up. You just knock out their tooth because you backhand him. Teeth in a day before fluoride and flossing. Teeth in their day. I would think they would come out pretty easy. Teeth. If you just knock out your, your employee's tooth and they have six years, maybe a hundred grand more debt to pay off to you, they go free. How dare you lay your hand in an assaulting manner against your, your servant, your brother in Israel. What is even further, if you kill them, you would be charged as killing an equal. This is un, unheard of in the contemporary time that this was written. I'm sure the Israelites heard this and, and were scratching their heads going, that's not how it worked in Egypt. They killed one of us Jewish slaves. They had a party about it. They had competitions who could whip the hardest, maim the worst, and kill the fastest. But here God is showing a different way for his covenant 
people. Now, here's the logic of verse 21. It says, if he beats his slave, and there could be multiple reasons why this might happen. I know that if you're white collar or you work in a hospital or maybe teaching profession or more sort of sanitized avenues, you might, might even be shocked and wonder, at what, for what reason would an employee ever be hit by an employer? But if you're a trader, you probably get this. If you're in the army, you probably, yeah, this is, duh. Okay, so if they, if, we know there's just reasons that an employer might have just reasons for striking, a, striking an employee. Maybe his slave is stealing stuff. Maybe his slave is, is taking the big jobs and going out into the field and you find him just on a pipe scrolling through Instagram underneath a tree. A guy needs a good, maybe across the, the thighs was the common way of doing it, a nice solid reed across the backs, a caning in order to discipline him because he's not listening to reason, even though his family back home is relying on the slave financial agreement come to here. Or maybe he's flirting with the other ladies. Maybe he's just a bit sus and he's putting the girl slaves in danger. Well, he might deserve a beating to put him back on track. I see nothing wrong with that. Don't think it's a requirement, but here it is in history. That's what happens. A little bit of corporal punishment. But the fact is that if he causes any injury to the slave, so if the slave is, is uh, maybe he's limping for a few days, maybe, maybe he's, uh, he's in and out of consciousness for a couple of days, and, and of course the, the owner is supposed to realize, I went too hard with this. He needs to see to his own responsibility, the, 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 the servant's health and medical bills. He will look after him as he's supposed to, as a good neighbor, like the good Samaritan. And then he's supposed to reimburse this person for the cost of their lost work. But who's the boss? Whose money was lost by the not working of the servant? Well, himself. So he's absorbed the costs of losing the work of a servant. That's what this phrase means here. He shall pay nothing because the slave is his money. He's not saying he's his ownership, he can do whatever he wants. He means he's absorbing the cost of, a, of an unworking servant. This is very logical. <clears throat> and then, of course, if you were to strike them, to hurt them, teeth come out, uh, uh, eyes are plucked out, they are to go free and, according to other laws that we see, would overlap and they would be reimbursed for their loss. There would be no permanent injuries, scars or otherwise, applied to servants simply because they're your ownership. They are your responsibility. We see also in this capital crime portion, this section about the unborn and the pregnant. In verse 22 and following, it's talking about two guys get into a kerfuffle. They start wrestling, and, and one of them shoves the other across a table. He strikes a pregnant woman. Whoever's fault it is that has hurt the pregnant woman, then it gives us these sort of avenues of, of, of possibilities. Now, if she gives birth there and then, she's made to go into premature labor, then even if the baby is unharmed, the mother uninjured, there will still be the stress pay because pregnant women and children require and deserve a higher level of care from all people, especially men in society. So God said, even if there's no injury, you still pay. The husband gets to give a, give a stress fee, uh, apply that to the judges. The judges can decide what's fair and exact that from the guilty party. But this says this, this very interesting line. It actually applies... To the unborn and to the freshly born child, the exact same legal protection for life and injury that is applied to adults and all other human beings. 
That is that under the, the law code of Israel, now much like Australia, modern Israel, most of the West, we, we, have, we are very proud of our progressive abortion laws so that this is not at all the case. Not in modern Israel, not in even much of ancient Israel, they started to twist these laws. Across our world, we think unborn may be human, but it's not a person. And God's law knows no such distinction. My, my saliva is human. My footprint is human. My shadow is human. The unborn baby is a person, a human person. And so God's law says <coughs> that if the baby is born and there's injury, maybe she doesn't give birth straight away, but, but as, as the birth comes, it, it becomes uh, evident that there is some kind of defect likely due to an injury uh, uh, attained throughout the, uh, because of that, that, that bump that the mother had, then the man guilty will be required to pay life for life, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, tooth for tooth. Now, babies are born without teeth. Maybe that's a good uh, excuse to just remove all of his upon birth, claim it on damages, right? But this was giving unborn the same legal protection as every other citizen in Israel. <clears throat> and we see this in this phrase uh, of verse 23, 4, and 5 of life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, etc. It's, it's become known in legal studies and historical studies as lex talionis. It's a fun one. That's a free one. Keep it on your belt and use it in conversation. Lex talionis. What it means is the law of retaliation. We might more, more fairly think of it as the law of compensation or the law of retribution because it sort of became known as, and this is the way Gandhi saw it, it became known as somebody does something to you, then to equal measure you have a right to do it back. They, they hit your eye, take their eye out. They take something of yours, take something back. They, they hit your wife, you hit their wife. Eye for eye equality. And Gandhi said, well, well I mean, you, you, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. False. It leaves about the first 500 people blind, and then people start learning the lesson because you lose your eye. That's the point of the law, is it starts building a bit of a conscience. So he's wrong. But also, if the whole world is that sinful, then the whole world deserves to be blind. And the next generation can have a go. But the point is that people sort of, equal, especially Christians, this is the danger, you equalize Gandhi and Jesus. Jesus came along and said, you have heard it said eye for an eye, but I say to you, turn the other cheek, love your neighbor, pray for those who curse you. And we say, see, Jesus and Gandhi will get us to Nirvana, heaven, Buddha, whatever. And, and, and all of this Lex Taliona stuff is garbage, it's barbaric, it's old-fashioned. Not at all the case. What Jesus was speaking against was the taking of the Lex Talionis principle and applying it to my personal retaliation in everyday life. Because what these laws given by God to Moses, given to the judges of Israel was supposed to be, was a principle for the judges to judge circumstances by and apply to different uh, situations with their own wisdom and discernment. It was not meant for you to go and take to your neighbor and apply your own Lex Talionis principle. That's the first misunderstanding. Not only is it for the judges, not for you, but it's also the, the, the underlying principle is that whatever the judges require you to pay to somebody else needs to be appropriate 
and proportionate to whatever crime they committed against you or you committed against them. So, so you run over their cat, they're not allowed to have one of your kids. You bump into their run-down, broken Yaris, you're not allowed to take one of their Mercedes, for example. You know, car for car. No, no, appropriate, even, but also proportionate. And here's where it comes in. That a rich man might be able to give back a sheep for the sheep that was negligently destroyed or, or might be able to pay a little fine for the amount that was stolen or lost from the poor person. But the Lex Talionis principle would, would explain that you should be hurt to the degree that you hurt another in negligence or in, or in cunning. So that it's not just the rich man pays off the pennies, but that he has to pay to a degree that he's losing as much as the poor man he picked on was lost by what was taken. So this is a very fair, proportionate, appropriate way of applying uh, with a paradigm of principles the law to all sorts of situations. Whereas other codes of the day, like the Hammurabi, or even still around today, you steal a loaf of bread, you lose a hand. Disproportionate, inappropriate, things like that but also uh, 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 preserved the class equality that we spoke about before. In other law codes of the day, uh, a slave who killed somebody would be, would be killed. Somebody free who killed a slave would be punished. But a rich person in the upper class who killed somebody else would simply be giving a fine. And a king who killed anybody was perfectly fine. Here's what the law of Lex Talionis says. Life for life. Your class your riches, your gender, your education, nothing changes the principle that God sees you as infinitely valuable in the sense that you bear his image and are loved and valued by him. And therefore, Lex Talionis preserved that in a day when that was entirely neglected. And it also provided this immediate justice for the, for the guilty and immediate justice for the victim. In other words, if they had the sort of prison system, now I'm not a legal professional, I'm not going to say what we should or shouldn't do in Australia necessarily starting tomorrow, but there is a principle that in corporal punishment and immediate lex talionis punishment, you have immediate retribution and justice. For example, a number of years ago, there was this corporate fraud. You wouldn't believe it. Corporations were fraudulently making money. I'll give you a moment to soak that in. And when it became evident that they were doing this, their stocks plummeted in value. Every one of the staff members who had portions in these stocks lost life savings because of it, though they had done nothing wrong. All of the higher-up corporates had done all of this. And when the higher-up elites (coughs) and executives were taken to court, guess who they had to pay money back to? The government for their crimes. Wouldn't believe it. The government took the money. Wow. Now, who went without? The people who genuinely lost. There was zero compensation for the staff members who had bought business stock and then had it turned to dust in their hands. Here's what Lex Talionis did in that day, was it gave immediate retribution back to those who had lost so that you don't have to wait 15, 20 years for, for your aggressor to suffer in prison where we'll get a free meal and free cable TV and a comfy television and a bunch of mates and maybe a gang and free tattoos, who knows. And while you're sitting out here with maybe a dead son, maybe lost life savings, maybe a destroyed house, and there's no compensation for you. 
Immediate justice is what God cared highly for and therefore put that principle into his law, that the guilty would be punished and then given immediate opportunity to start building his life back up morally. And the, the victim was able to see immediate retribution given to him. Then later on, we see all of these principles from 28 down to verse 36 in, uh, 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 in verse 21, uh, chapter 21. And then the rest of chapter 22, 1 through um, uh, 15, is principles for theft or damaged goods while under your care. That is examples like uh, 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 your, your, your pit bull gets out of your yard and it's a dangerous breed and you've been told that by the council, gets out of your yard, bites a kid kills somebody, hurts somebody else's property, you're, you're responsible for the death of that person because you could have avoided it. Or other things, like uh, you, you dig a big well on your property, you don't put fences around it, somebody falls in, you're to blame. You should have protected. Uh, somebody borrows you something and you're looking after it and, 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 and it gets damaged under your care, you have to pay back what is your... So there's this principle all, all through the old, uh, the, the, these laws of retribution and theft that you're not just responsible for what you do, but also for what you fail to do to preserve life and property. This needs to be said in our day, and we could all learn a great deal from this. Whether it's, whether it's uh, being careless with our dangerous dog, maybe that. Maybe you're the neighbor that needs to build a higher fence and get a tighter leash. Maybe you're, you're the neighbor who, who, who keeps on having people injured when they come onto your property because you still haven't fixed the, the steps or, or put a rail on the veranda and people keep on getting hurt. God holds you responsible because you could have been more active. Maybe you're the guy driving around without a roadworthy certificate. You know your back axle's broken. And if it breaks on the highway, you will kill multiple people. Take responsibility. Maybe you're the guy who's driving always 130 kilometers an hour minimum, always on your phone. You are thanking only the sovereign providence of God that you have not killed people. Because whether or not our law will, will find you or what, God will hold you responsible for the damage to life and property that you should have by care not inflicted. We are responsible, not merely to, to read the law and go, well, I can technically slip out of this and find a loophole there. No one saw me do this. Who will know that I'm doing this? Remember when we first started studying the Ten Commandments, one of the principles I reminded of us, us of was that God is nowhere trying to set up a bunch of web of commands that we should try and duck and weave through. He is giving us principles and binding laws that we might from our heart, not outwardly compelled merely by punishments or the technicality that this is old covenant, not new covenant, but that we might from the heart seek to protect others, love God, love neighbors, and fulfill the law from our heart. That is what is required. So where do you need to repent? What things are you doing maybe in your work, in your, in, your, in your contracting business or in your driving or in your family home leading? What are you doing that you need to step back and realize, I am not living by wisdom, by love, and by the spirit of the law of God in doing all that I can do and could do to protect life and property. God wants a moral people that looks different from the world, that do not work on the principle of who will know, but lives on the principle God knows, God sees, 
I live as for Christ. All of my life for Christ. Living as if he is my master, my boss, and my police officer, always watching and requiring because he is a good and merciful master with wise, good laws. The, 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 the history of the scripture goes like this. God, God promised to Adam after the fall that a savior would come. Then he promised to Noah that God would be gracious with the world despite its sin until the savior came. And then Abraham was promised, then a nation will come out of you from whom the Savior will come. And then Moses was given all these laws. Here's how the nation should behave until the Savior comes. Here's what happened. Sin, failure, breaking covenant, failing to be perfect, failing, failing, sin, rebellion, failure. Why? God's plan of salvation was never, and if you accomplish this, Noah, if you accomplish this, Abraham, if you accomplish this, Moses, if you accomplish this, Israel, then there will be mercy for the world through a savior. Rather, God, knowing our sin, our guilt, and our weakness, promised over and above our failures to send the Messiah into the world, that after all of Israel's failures, and after all of the Gentile wickedness, and after all of our personal sins, yet still, God has sent the Savior to accomplish what humans by the law could never do. He sent Jesus to do what Moses' law code could never accomplish, and that is make a sacrifice to actually finally atone for sin, and then send the Holy Spirit to make you new from the inside, not from the outside by some law written on stone, but by the law written on your heart. And Jesus rose from the dead to rule and reign and gives to his people new hearts, gives to you the love of God's law to live a righteous life, and to anyone who is an enemy of this Jesus, who is still living under the condemnation of the law, who is still living in the confusion and the anarchy and the chaos that sin causes in the soul and mind and body, to you, the King of all kings, Jesus Christ says, come to me, trust in me, I died for you, I am worth everything, say goodbye to whatever you may lose, I am the King, I will mercifully pardon, my blood will clean you, and I will make you a child of God. That's the promise of Jesus, that's the call of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that even in these darkened and grayscale portions of Scripture, the Spirit brings to life and to light and to full color your goodness and your justice and your wisdom. I pray, Lord God, that we would be people who, though freed from the stringencies of old covenant law, though we are on this side of the cross and therefore there's much more everyday freedom, Though, Lord God, we are not condemned by the law and we are under grace in our relationship with you, yet, Lord God, would you make us people who, who from the heart love your commandments and know that whatever you say will have some wisdom in it that I can learn from because you are the God who speaks. And it is not from bread, but it is from the words of your mouth that makes me to live. Father God, would you allow us to and enable us to be those who glorify you in our life of just living? And would you allow us, Lord God, uh, uh, the gift and the pleasure of seeing more people added to your number through the gospel? Father God, I pray that this morning, people who know that they're sinners and people who know that they're going to hell and people who know that they have no claim to your mercy, that they would lay claim to that mercy in Jesus. 
that even though they know themselves to be hopeless, that they can find the riches of hope and promises in Jesus Christ who loves them. Would you bring more souls into your glorious kingdom today, Lord God? We pray all of this in the name of our Messiah, Jesus. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.